Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fecky, Henry Washington, and James Daynard. Good to have all three of you here. Appreciate you joining us, coming back from some very fun sounding trips that you were all on. Henry, I thought we lost you to Hawaii permanently. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did think of taking up permanent residence in Hawaii, but uh, I would just get island fever, man. That flight's a long flight to get out of there. So, But we love being there. I feel like there's this thing with real estate investors, like specifically in the bigger pockets community, that they all just like wound up on Maui at some point. Yeah. Like they, they all just find <laughs> find themselves there. I obviously went to to hang out with Brandon, but then realized Josh Dorkin lived like down the street, like walking distance. And then like every night, just random real estate investors show up at Brandon's house and then just food shows up and <laughs> yep. people sit around to like one in the morning. Like that's just a thing there. I didn't I had no clue. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, James, is that on your list of places you're going to move, Maui? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I would go so stir crazy if I was stuck on an island. No, oh, I got okay. I, I, I to move. I, I need to be able to move around. or, or but, but I do enjoy visiting. Kathy, did you do the same thing when you were out there? Did you stay up to one in the morning talking to Brandon about real estate? Yes. But pro no, probably like three in the morning. But yeah, oh, we had a yeah. great time. <laughs> I guess Kathy's more interesting than you, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a surprise. <laughs> Well, we do have a great show for everyone today. We are doing a headline show. We're going to talk about some of the most important and interesting things happening in real estate today. So what we're going to cover today is an update on the major lawsuits that are potentially going to be impacting how 
agents are compensated and sort of could have all these cascading ripple effects throughout the industry. We have a big update there. We'll talk about construction trends, which I think is particularly interesting given how important they are for inventory these days. We'll also talk about a new type of home called a passive home. And lastly, we will visit our friend Dave Ramsey and hear about some advice that he has been giving young landlords. And I want to see if the three of you agree with what advice Dave Ramsey is giving. So that's what we're getting into today. It's going to be a great conversation. We will take a quick break and then we'll jump into it. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. The first headline today is that Remax, one of the biggest brokerages in the country, has settled in the two lawsuits that have been ongoing and allege that some of the NAR rules and some of the rules uh, instituted by brokers around how sellers are in some ways, or this is what they allege, sellers are forced to pay the buyer's commission and how that is uh, not legal or violates antitrust rules. Remax has decided to settle this lawsuit for $55 million. And if anyone is not familiar with these lawsuits, it does have this huge potential to change the industry. It's it's too much for us to get into fully here, but we did do an episode with James Rodriguez on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was called New Agent Lawsuits Could Have Profound Effects on Buying and Selling Homes. So you can go uh, check that out on the, on the market feed if you want to learn more. But basically, it sounded like these lawsuits are trying to get 
agents and brokerages to change the way they do business and not force uh, sellers to pay the broker commission. So I'm a little confused by the settlement here, right? Because Remax says they will quote unquote change some of their business practices, which hopefully they will, but it doesn't really sound like it's changing all that much. So Kathy, let's start with you. What do you make of this settlement? Oh, wow. Well, a settlement is kind of a way of saying, I don't really want to go to court on this and I don't want a jury to decide. So let's just settle. It doesn't necessarily mean there's any kind of court order for them to change things. But, um, you know, the, the question is, will this affect real estate? I, I, I guess for me, the biggest issue is it's still the buyer at the end of the day who's paying for it, right? Um, the, what, what could hurt the buyer is if they can't finance those fees. So in other words, if now the seller no longer pays for the buyer's fee in the price of the home and the buyer has to come out of pocket, could that still go on the closing costs? Could it still be covered in the loan? Because if they have to come out of pocket, that kind of hurts to me, in my opinion, the buyer the most. Um, You know, also, we're kind of changes changes are happening, right? And technology is changing a lot of things. And I think a lot of people thought that realtors would see their fees go down anyway, now that, you know, people could kind of go find their own property and go to the open house. And all they really need is some guidance through the contract process. And and uh, anyway, you know, there's change, change is coming. It just is kind of actually surprising to me how long it's taking. Yeah, I, I this seemed like it was going to be one of the more successful or at least interesting lawsuits or challenges to the status quo. And now I'm curious if maybe it was overblown and it was just more, um, yeah, posturing or a cash grab. But uh, James, you know, you're probably, you are the most active agent among us. So what do you make of all this? I mean, as far as I have felt that these kind of lawsuits and threaten of lawsuits, that they have made zero, everybody's still advertised, at least in the Pacific Northwest, the average commission is five to 6%. 3% to the buyer, 3% to the seller, and it's paid by the seller. Um, what Kathy brought up is a, a good point. I do think if it won't really matter and the financing would change, but yeah, it could have impact on that, especially that first-time home buyer that's putting down 3%. And now all of a sudden, if they have to pay another 3%, that's 100% more they got to come with, with on a down payment. But I think this whole thing, all it does is add another level of complexity to a complex deal in general, like in real estate, there's all these negotiations going on. And now there's just an extra thing of negotiations where, you know, buyers are going to go out and they're going to shop and price out their brokers. And, you know, what it's going to come down to is the brokers that are going to charge 3% or what has historically been the average, they're going to provide a very good service. And the ones that aren't providing a good service are probably going to need to charge less. And that, I mean, I have no problem with that. I just feel like now it's this open negotiation before you even go into a negotiation. So it's just another thing that you have to talk to your client about. Well, yeah, they, I they, I think it could end up that way, but just want to be clear that th- this settlement doesn't make that necessary. Like we don't know yet if that's going to necessarily happen, but it does seem that is, I at least thought, James, that that was the intention of these lawsuits is that that's what the plaintiffs wanted is for you to be able to negotiate more re- easily. They wanted money. <laughs> the plaintiffs, yeah. They just <laughs> wanted to see if they could get someone to settle. And they got it. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that all you make of this, Henry? You think it's going to be over? I mean, I mean, based on this settlement, I don't think anything's going to change. I mean, they don't have to change anything. Why would they want to? They're not incentivized to change. I don't think anything 
seriously around the laws is going to do. Now, should it change? I think there should be some change. I think it's silly that one side pays for both agents' commissions. Yes, and I think that that could cause a problem for these buyers who have to go out and find their own agents, right? But they've already got, like, down payments are expensive. Closing costs are expensive. And because they're so costly, there have been programs and things that uh, that provide assistance for those as well as you're able to finance some of those things into the loan. I just think this will be another one of those things where some assistance will be provided to those who need it um, or will be able to finance it into the loan. Now, will it hurt some people? I think, yeah, I mean, any any law change is there's going to be people that it benefits and people that it hurts. I think the issue is like people think agents are just, you know, opening doors and pushing papers until you get into a situation or a negotiation where that agent's actual skill set is truly needed. And then they are a lifesaver, right? And then you're so glad you got a good agent and the right representation for that deal. Now, you know, what percentage of deals get done are just pushing papers and opening doors versus the percentage of deals where, you know, you really need your agent to act like your advocate and rock star for you. I, I, you know, I'm, I don't have those kinds of numbers, but I know I've been in deals where I sure was glad that I had the right representation and would have would have gladly paid three percent, four percent, five percent. No, totally. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. that situation. And so do I think this needs to be looked at and uh, potentially some change needs to happen? I think so. Does it need to happen the way that they're that they're indicating it needs to happen? I'm not sure. You know, I don't I don't have the answers for that, but. I do think it's silly that one side pays for both agents and and I can understand why that's frustrating. Yeah, I'm sort of I I tend to agree with you, Henry. I think it doesn't seem like an optimized system for anyone. And I I totally agree that agents deserve to make a fair commission off of these things. I they're extremely valuable. It does just seem like overly complicated and like this strange, weird thing. And some sort of reimagining probably could happen um, to benefit everyone involved. I, I just don't know what that is, but I will say that I doubt anything's going to change. And NAR is a professional lawsuit destroyer. That's like all they do. <laughs> right. They just have so much money. That's their expertise. And yeah. That's like literally their whole job is just squashing lawsuits. So I think that they are probably going to succeed at squashing this one too. And, you know, you know, I, I advocated for agents. And so now I'm going to play the other side. I think part of the problem is there's too many agents. There's way more agents than there are homes uh, available on the market for sale. It's too easy to be a bad agent and make a little bit of money here and there, right? Like I think no matter what rules change, the agents who are good and are doing the right things and taking care of their clients in the right ways and great at showing their value will continue to make money in those that suck and are just in there to, to pick up a commission here or there and don't really work that hard and want to want to pick up all the easy dollars off the ground. Like James. They're going to struggle. Yeah. It's not like one side is paying. It's the buyer who's paying. The, the buyer's paying for the the cost of the sale, right? At the end of the day, it's in the price of the property. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not like the seller is coming out of pocket and then the, the buy, the, uh, you know, it's, it's the buyer at the end of the day who's mm-hmm. paying all the fees and commissions. So I, I just, I don't really care how that's done, but to me, it's, it, if it's like it's lumped into the price of the property, then that's easier because it can be financed. Um, but back to your guys's point, like a good realtor is worth every bit of it. A bad one is 
a bad one, no matter what, and is going to screw up your deal. I just saw that happen recently where somebody hired their buyer's agent who's not from the area. It was just a friend. Please don't do that. Yeah. Don't, this isn't a friend industry. Hire someone local who has done a ton of business in your neighborhood because they're going to know, in our case, we're on septic systems. The person that was representing this guy who lost out on the deal didn't know anything about septic systems. So if you, if you used a local agent, they would know everything about the soil, about the area, the problems that have existed over the past 10 or 20 years that they've been helping people in the market. So that, that would be to buyers out there, get someone local and experienced who's done a ton of deals directly in the area where you're buying. Well, to, sort of to James's point, I feel like that's sort of the fear, right? Is that if you just, uh, if buyers are shopping around for the cheapest available agent, then many of them not knowing the difference between a 1% or a 3% agent will choose the cheaper option and ultimately wind up with someone who is not, either doesn't have their best interest or is not capable of providing the level of service that a home buyer, but particularly an investor who has their own set of needs is going to to need in a transaction. And, you know, we do a lot of transactions in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we're, typically we're doing about 250 to 300 transactions a year. When we have to work with discount brokers, and there's nothing wrong with a discount broker, but I will say we have more contract issues with all those files when because they're not properly explaining the contracts to people. People are going for a discount. They're looking for their kickback and they think it's just simple. <laughs> and then they come back and they're upset about something later. It's like, we'll read the contract. That's the job of the broker is to properly explain the contract and what the client is getting into. And because there's discounts out there, they're not getting explained. And then people are upset at the end. So, you know, I will say it's going to get transactions a little bit more messier if we start just cutting costs everywhere. But I mean, hopefully people realize that a, a costly mistake will cost them way more than 1% on mm-hmm. a purchase. <laughs> yeah, it's like the saying, like, you think a $200 an hour plumber is expensive, try a $20 an hour plumber. It's like, <laughs> you know, like you, you better off yeah. just paying up front. Um, and, but yeah, I digress. All right. Well, if, you know, we all sort of agree that the importance of agents, if you do want to meet a, you know, sort of trusted investor-friendly agent, BiggerPockets can match you with one completely for free. Just go to biggerpockets.com slash agents. You put in a couple of stats, information about yourself, and you can get matched with someone who can help you and represent your best interests. With that, let's move on to our second headline, which is that U.S. housing starts dropped to the lowest level since June of 2020. Basically, from July to August, construction of new homes fell about 11% to the point where at an annualized rate, it would be about just under 1.3 million. Uh, and that is probably not what people want to hear, given that there is such low inventory right now. James, you're pretty involved in the the construction and you do a little bit of that yourself. What do you make of this? I found it kind of surprising decline in home starts. Um, You know, I'm actually not surprised about the home starts because, you know, like right now with the article also did references permits for single family homes rose by 2%. And so it's kind of back on the rise again. But what happened is when, when the interest rates really jumped, builders locked up immediately and, and you know, rates started increasing, what, about 13, 14 months ago? B- 
builders froze for a minute, at least in the Pacific Northwest, where our, our transactions on dirt probably went down by 95%. Builders were walking away from sites. They were very nervous that the market was going to crash. And what it did is it kind of created this big lull in the permits. And and so like we're, we're actually seeing more permits starting to roll out of Seattle right now. Because there was just kind of this backlog of permitting. In addition to builders, because cost of money's gone up and the cost of construction is still elevated and now pricing is more flat, they're having to buy this land cheaper. And it's taking a minute for the for the, the seller's mindsets to reset on the new basis of what the land can be sold for. And so we had this like six-month stalemate in the market between sellers and builders too. And now what we're seeing is builders are now transacting a lot more because the the values have just compressed and they can work inside their margins. So I do think permits are going to increase over the next six to 12 months. But there was this weird lull. And anytime builders stop buying, a lot of times the permits aren't issued for six to 12 months. And so there's just kind of this delay going on. Yeah. And, um, in addition to that, when you really dive into the article, the construction pace of single family homes fell by only 4.3%, but it was a apartment building construction that fell by 26%. Um, and, and that's kind of obvious, you know, with apartments with higher rates, it is so hard for these builders to be able to sell for what they mm-hmm. thought they were going to be able to sell for. And they're just giving up. They're like, forget about it. So there were all these headlines about all this new supply that was going to be coming in with apartments. And a lot of that is slowing down or not going to happen for a while, at least until rates come down. So that, that is, that's part of the issue. Single family falling a little bit because rates, rates are a problem, but single family home builders can buy down the rate. And so they're still able to sort of keep it going. But with apartments, not, not the case. If they're building to sell, they're not going to be able to sell for, for what it's costing them to build. So they're just pausing. Yeah. And on that new construction apartments, that those sites, they take a lot longer to permit typically too. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is that these builders, they perform a cheaper money, cheaper build costs, and now they finally got their permits two to three years later and their costs have exploded. And what's happening, like we bought in two sites, one recently when there was a 50 unit permitted apartment building, they got, it took them four years to get them to that completion. He marketed it to try to sell it. No one would buy it because costs are well out of whack. And we just bought it for, he, I think he, I think the seller lost about a million dollars after a four year project and we are scrapping his whole permit and we're building 22 townhomes there instead. And so I, I think the the multifamily, the math won't work at all. The, those permits are going to continue to decline and not be built out right now. Yeah, I'm seeing similar here in our in our local market. These the, the, the we I'd say about two years ago, all you saw was new construction apartment buildings going up everywhere, and now you're starting to see that slow down quite a bit. And the ones that are up, man, that they'll change hands like two or three times before the project is even complete. Like people are getting getting into the project and then realizing it's not going to work out and then they'll get out of the project and somebody else will get into it. And even on my own uh, projects, I've got a, a, a multifamily deal that I was building. We were going to build eight units ground up. And when I bought, from when I bought the land to now, when I'm at the point where we're going to construct, the cost to build has gone up so tremendously and the cost of money has gone up tremendously. I can't make the numbers work. I can't make the numbers work if I want to keep it, if I want to sell it. And so that's why we're actually just selling the land to a developer who can probably build it cheaper than I can build it. Um, and then, you know, that'll, it'll be, you know, they can monetize it differently than I can. I just, A, I'm not built for that, but B, um, when I bought it, 
the numbers made great sense. Interest rates were half of what they were now. The cost to build was down. Uh, it was less than it is now. And it's just, it, the, I don't see how the numbers are making sense. So I see, I can understand why multifamily is trending down, but single family construction around here. Yeah. Crazy. There's new developments going in all over the place. And, and it, and it's, uh, a, it's needed and, and B. So I was surprised when I saw this article. And then once I, I dug into it and I could, I can see how multifamily is doing a little worse. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. There's just a huge glut of oversupply and multifamily. No one wants to add on top of that and get into be the last in an already oversupplied market right now. But single family, as everyone knows, undersupplied. So I think builders are very happy. They are making, you know, there's no inventory. Just I think we've talked about this on the show, but in typical times, new construction makes up about 10, 11% of all home sales. Now it's about 30% just because the existing home market has completely dried up. So I, you know, I, I, this is a, an interesting headline, but I think the more interesting thing is what you all were talking about. Keep an eye on single family construction, because I think that is probably going to keep, in my mind, probably going to keep going up. All right. For our third headline, we were talking about a brand new type of home design. It is called a passive home. It comes from Road Architects and Passive Home Construction. They created their first passive homes in Boston. Basically, the idea is that these homes are sustainable. They feature airtight designs, I guess, like a spaceship. And they're, they include solar panels and shading to maintain internal temperatures. The idea here is that although it is more expensive to build, they claim 5 to 15% more than a traditional home, that it will save homeowners on utility costs in the long run. Henry, I just would love to hear your thoughts about this concept. <laughs> Sounds like you have an opinion. <laughs> I just, I, um, I just feel like Henry has something to say here. Yes, these are. <laughs> look, I get it. I understand that you're saving on utility costs, but the costs to build these, I think, are drastically more. And so you, you, it, it, you know, we, we, we talked about these homes and we kind of looked at some of the architecture, and it's cool. They do really make the homes essentially airtight so that you don't have to have a traditional HVAC system that's running all the time to keep your, your home temperature regulated. And that, that savings along with the solar savings allows you to essentially, these people are making money on their utilities. There's, there was one story of a guy who he had so much energy store that he was able to give that or to his parents and his parents would be able to pay for their uh, utility bills through the, the, the savings he was creating through his passive home. And that's a cool story, you know, but you think about like these people could afford probably more home than they purchased. Like they're not looking to save money on energy. Yeah. They're buying it because it looked pretty and it was a unique design. And I'm sure that there was some, some pride element in that, but you know, the people who need the energy savings aren't going to be able to afford to build them. So I don't know how like realistic this is <laughs> yeah, a, yeah you know for the people who really need it i don't know how realistic it is for them to be able to get into, get into it this sort of reminds me i don't know if you guys have heard it's it's used a lot in the tech industry this concept of like crossing the chasm or jumping the chasm where it's just basically like anytime there's a new technology the the way it gets off the ground is by like real enthusiasts sort of like what you're saying henry yeah. which is like people who don't do it for the cost saving. They do it because they're interested in sustainability or they're like the architecture, they like the design. 
basically probably people who live in Kathy's community. I don't know, but uh, it's people who, who are going to like support the industry before the, the efficiencies of scale come in and make it affordable to everyone else. And I feel like this is just like, that's where this industry is right now. It's extremely expensive. It's a, it's a proof of concept stage, but it's, way too inefficient to actually become cost effective. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is I was I was uh nominated or I w- I won the award of top 100 most intriguing entrepreneur- entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs in 20 in uh 2012. And it was a really cool thing I got to meet Elon Musk. Cool. And when he was there, yeah, it was really cool and he had just come out with the really expensive Tesla, the first one. And that's exactly what he said. It's like they, he way overpriced them intentionally mm-hmm. to help cover the cost of the innovation of it. And, uh, those wealthy people who bought them, first of all, got to have the ego about that to be one of the first to have it. It's a beautiful car and it was original and they, they had no, I, I knew lots of people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I live in an area where everywhere you looked, they had them <laughs> yeah. and it was a big deal. I remember the the doors would go up and the car would dance and all that stuff. So <laughs> there's plenty of people who are willing to pay for that uh, innovation. And and the way Elon explained it to us was, this is what's going to allow me to give it to everybody. Mm-hmm. And and he said, someday we're going to be able to come out with the $30,000 one, which is the one I bought. Yeah. So, you know, and you know, when people put up their nose to me that I drive a Tesla. It's like, yeah, but I paid less for my Tesla than you might have paid for your car because because of those people. So I see it the same way. There's enough people who don't blink about it. What they're really looking at is more of a climate change. It's more of a passion project and they're mm-hmm. happy to to put down the money. I I think it's really cool. And we've been looking at we we bought a, a lot years ago that was super cheap. Um, believe it or not, you know, people don't believe it, but lots in Malibu are actually pretty cheap. This one was like $99,000 when we saw it. And, um, and so we, we have had this lot and we've been looking at all the different ways to put something on there, uh, that would be unique and different. And, but the key is affordable. <laughs> Yeah, and we yeah. haven't been able to find the affordable one yet, but we're waiting because maybe like uh, Elon Musk, it will it will come down in price eventually. James, you think you could build this for five to fifteen percent over normal build costs? Uh, absolutely not. They're so <laughs> off on the cost. I mean, just your core things. Uh, your your heat system typically is radiant versus HVAC. That costs you three to four times as much. Your insulation's triple. Your window package is like. 5x is more expensive then you have an airtight house and not only do you have to spend four times as much on your radiant heat system then you have to buy an erv system which is three times more expensive than an hvac system to recirculate the air it is so expensive to build these houses and your premium you get on the backside it is not really there and then this and then the buyer who's paying that premium it usually takes them 10 to 15 years just to get their energy savings back and right now they're buying it with a seven percent rate and so they're essentially just financing their savings down the road it just doesn't make sense we tried this when the the built green energy started becoming a big trend in like 2012 10 11 and 12 we started doing four to five star uh renovations where we were putting in triple pane windows upgrading these things and we were thought we were going to get this huge premium it was a net loss every time as far as an investment goes it just doesn't make sense to build it yeah i mean i think we see this all across real estate you know like this is clearly one focused on energy reduction but even you know you look at like 3d printed homes like the idea is that eventually they will be 
cost effective. But right now they're not particularly cost effective. But um, I'm I'm all for construction innovation wherever it comes. You know, I, I feel like I wouldn't buy one of these right now. But I, I think, you know, the more innovation we see in the construction industry, the better. It's still pretty antiquated, low tech kind of industry. And uh, the more people taking on these kinds of projects, the better in my mind. All right, for our last headline, we're going to be talking about good old Dave Ramsey. So the headline here is tired of the crazy train. Dave Ramsey tells frustrated young landlord to ditch the duplex and go get a house. Basically, what happened is a young Michigan landlord named Joe called into the Ramsey show for advice about what to do with the duplex he no longer cares for. I should probably explain if anyone doesn't know who Dave Ramsey is. He is a sort of talk show host, personal finance person who gives advice. It's like a, you know, sort of like talk radio. Obviously, it's not just on the radio anymore, but that's what it is. But basically, he called into the Dave Ramsey show uh, with a duplex. He bought it with his girlfriend in the fall of 2020, around 164 grand, lived in it. Basically, they house hacked it, uh, did some renovations, think they could sell it for a pretty nice, about 20, 30% profit. But he's tired of having tenants and living underneath his tenants. He's unsure how to handle his investment. Dave Ramsey responded, quote, I would sell the crap out of this thing. So Dave Ramsey suggested <laughs> end the house hack, sell your duplex and invest in a home yourself. Henry, I know you're a big house hacking advocate. Is this the advice you would give? Uh, I, I would have just said move into the top unit. <laughs> <laughs> landlord do what you want it's yours that is a very simple solution yeah don't live under your tenant then that's hilarious <laughs> look yeah i'm a big advocate of house hacking i did it it changed my life um uh but i but i will say it wasn't comfortable like i don't I don't know that anybody says it's it's supposed to be comfortable. I think there are ways that you can do it that are more comfortable than others. But I think the general gist is it's going to be uncomfortable. Like wealth isn't built within a comfort zone. That's not how it works. If you want it, nobody wealthy got wealthy by being comfortable. Unless it, unless your wealth was inherited, then then mm -hmm. you got really uncomfortable at some point in order to build wealth. And so if the goal for this 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 young person was to uh, house hack their way into building wealth. I think it's a huge first step. If their goal was just, I don't really feel like paying a mortgage for a little while. So I'm going to house hack. Then you probably accomplish that, sell it and move on. Like it depends on what your goal is like this, this, you know, just because they house hack doesn't mean they wanted to be real estate investors for life. That may not have been their goal, but, um, but for me, uh, house hacking was, uh, a way for me to take a giant leap towards financial freedom oh, and yeah. it was an uncomfortable leap but lord i'm glad i did it i'm so with you i'm so with you henry i had so many problems in my house hack it was on a septic <laughs> system and the septic system just started backing up sewage into my tenant's place and then into my place and when, so we had to deal with that issue we had to i mean we had all kinds of issues it was in no way shape form or fashion comfortable but lord did it give me a giant leap towards financial freedom so i think it's a uh, silly advice on a financial show to tell someone to sell something that's probably going to get them to the financial freedom they're looking for a lot faster than just the savings route that he's probably preaching to them to do
Well, Henry, he he missed a huge point, and that is okay. This the, they they paid one hundred and sixty four thousand dollars for this duplex. <laughs> right. If they put three mm-hmm. percent down, what was that? The five thousand dollars that yeah. they put down, um, and they made thirty five thousand. What what is that? A five x on their money? So uh, that little part was left out of the comment. Um, if they put twenty percent down, which they didn't have to, if it was their first property, um, then they still doubled their money. So there's that. Pretty sound financial advice. You know, so I agree. And Henry, I, when I house hacked, we lived on the top floor and we had to wear socks and slide across the floor. <laughs> so, you know, no, it, it wasn't comfortable, but it also helped us build wealth. It helped us. We took that money we made and were able to buy investment property. So yeah, you, you know what? You got to be uncomfortable when you're starting out. If you're somebody who has a bunch of money when you're starting out, then maybe you don't have to be, but that's not the case for most of us. Most of us have to house hack, you know, yeah. hack your way up. <laughs> so that's, you know, anyway, they, at this point, if they're wealthy enough, yeah, sure. Go buy your own home. Yeah. Uh, but I would still put an ADU on it. Right. <laughs> or buy a home and just keep the duplex and hire a property manager like and not yeah. do the management. Like there's plenty of other ways that you could sustain this investment without selling it and going to buy another house. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dave missed the biggest concept of that whole house hacking first time home buyer program you can use. You can go buy a house, live there for 12 months, and then you can go do it again and lock in the finance. <laughs> right. it's, it's the best way to grow your portfolio with the least amount of money. And, you know, they just did a great job. They got the right price. Yeah, you shouldn't have to live there either. Just go find the next one and then make sure it's a side-by-side duplex next time. That that also makes it a lot better. And they're probably locked into a really low rate if they bought in 2020. I mean, why would you walk? Can I I tell you guys a funny story about house hack about tenants? So just this last weekend, I was in, I was at a wedding in Portugal um, and it was a friend of uh, mine from Amsterdam, but used to live in Denver where I invest. And I was talking to this guy something came up and he was talking, I was talking about, oh, I own this, you know, this triplex in, in Cap Hill. And he was like, oh, where is it? And I told him like the cross sheets. He's like, oh yeah, like I, th- I used to party around there quite a lot. And I was like, oh, where? And he like gave the address and I was like, that's, that's my house. And <laughs> he was like, uh, I was like, when did you, when were you partying there? And he was like, gave me the years. And I was like, yeah, I lived upstairs above that party house. Cause like I lived in like the 600 square foot, uh, you know, one bedroom was a nice place, but I gave up the, it's like this beautiful five bedroom old Victorian in Denver. And he was like, oh man, I feel so bad. We were always just partying until three in the morning. Like, oh, that's so terrible. I was like, yeah, it was mostly fine. Except one time it was like 4.30 in the morning and I had something to do. And I faked a police call. I called the the tenant and I was like, hey, you know, I'm cool. I don't mind. But the police just called and said that they had a noise complaint, but it was completely fake. I just made it up. And they were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And they and they wound up shutting down the party. So I got to go to sleep. But they were actually great tenants. But it was so funny. It's just so random. Oh, like, my gosh. Yeah. Why weren't you at the party, Dave? We used to we used to a little bit out in the back porch. We used to all hang out together. But uh, I tried to, to, to keep my distance a little bit. All right. Well, that's what we got for our show today. Thank you all so much for joining us. As a reminder, let us know where people can find you, Henry. Where should people uh, check you out if they want to learn more? Yeah, best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm at thehenrywashington.com, or you can check me out online at 
www.cuattheclosingtable.com. All right, James. Our easiest way is on Instagram at jdaneflips, or you can check it out on jamesdanner.com. Kathy? Realwealth.com or on Instagram at Kathy Fedke. All right. And I'm at the Data Deli on Instagram, or you can always find me on Bigger Pockets. I am quite responsive on both platforms. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. The show is produced by Kaylin Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.